Well, this morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 6. I've been looking forward to preaching this sermon for a while. Um, got a chance to deliver this message or a very similar one to the men back in March at our retreat. And I'm thankful so much for Romans chapter 6 because it's it's a challenging portion of Paul's letter, but it's also extremely encouraging and extremely helpful, especially as we come to understand um, what he has to say to us. And so this morning we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 6. Rather than read the entire text up front, what I'm going to do is work our way through it and read portions of it as we go along. There are questions that have endured through time. And um, this morning we're going to be looking at a question that Paul asks. Not this one. But this is an interesting question I want to use it to set the stage for this morning. How many of you have heard that famous quote before? The question, to be or not to be? What does that mean? Um, To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against the sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them, to die, to sleep, no more. And by a sleep to say, we end the heartache, and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. And it goes on for uh, 24 more lines like that. <laughs> Hamlet postulates this question to his audience in the third act of Shakespeare's Hamlet. And the soliloquy is essentially all about life and death. To be or not to be simply means to live or not to live, or you could say to live or to die. Hamlet says to be or not to be because he's questioning the value of life and he's asking himself whether it's worthwhile continuing to live. He's extremely depressed at this point and he's fed up with everything in the world around him and he's contemplating putting an end to himself. Well, Romans chapter 6 is also considering a life and death question but from a very different worldview. And in it, the author, the Apostle Paul, asks the question, not just once, but twice, a question that has life and death implications. Well, the chapter is divided into two major sections, and each section has a question, an answer, a reason for that answer, and a command. And then at the end, there's a final Conclusion that is the crescendo of the chapter and a very significant answer to all of it. So let's look first at um, the first verse in Romans chapter 6. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word again, and we ask that you would help our minds to perceive, help us to know what we need to know about sin and about what you've done to accomplish our ultimate deliverance from it, And our incremental deliverance from it in this life. Help us to not be discouraged as we battle sin. But may this text this morning be an encouragement to us to fight sin with all our strength, with all our might in Christ, because we, in fact, are, in reality, set free from sin. Help us to understand this mystery. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul asked the question in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we continue in sin so that grace may increase? 
In other words, you could ask the question this way. Should we go on sinning in order to draw more grace out of God? Well, what kind of a question is that? I mean, who talks that way anyway? It's possible that Paul was anticipating the uh, Jewish legalists of his time who would have seized on his statement in chapter 5 where he said, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And preemptively, Paul might have been responding to their accusations that surely would come, accusing him of being an antinomian, which means basically declaring lawlessness. You can do whatever you want. Live and let live. But you might be saying, I would never ask a question like that. Should I keep sinning? I mean, I know I shouldn't sin. Isn't that obvious? Sin is wrong. In fact, sin is downright sinful. But let's think about it a little bit more deeply. What what other versions of that question might you or I be asking or at least flirt with at times? Have you ever excused occasional or even habitual sin in your life because of grace? Think about that with me. Here's some examples of typical thinking, rationalization. It's not really going to hurt anybody. It isn't illegal. I deserve better than this. I can't help myself. No one will find out. Nobody's perfect. People get away with doing things much worse than this all the time. They had it coming. Buyer beware. I had no choice. The alternatives would have been far worse. If I hadn't done it, somebody else would have. I had their best interest in mind. And finally, God knows I'm weak. He'll forgive me. Now, I'm sure that none of us have ever rationalized in any of these ways, right? After all, why is not sinning so important to God if his grace covers it all. And this really is a legitimate and an important question. And at the root of it, the question is about how big of a deal do we think sin really is? In the little book that we're studying in the Mild Small Group, Knowing Sin by Mark Jones, he sets up a penetrating scenario by asking a very similar form of this question. Here's the question. If you had to make a choice to either, one, commit a very small sin that would directly result in you saving your entire family from destruction, or, number two, refuse to commit that sin which would directly result in the loss of your entire family, which would you choose? My knee-jerk reaction 
is that I'm not sure. No. My knee-jerk reaction is that I'm sure I would save my family and ask for forgiveness. This is a question that can expose how our perspective on sin is colored by our desire to control our life circumstances in order to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. So, just how serious is sin? Well, sin is the most destructive force in the universe. It began its wrecking rampage in the Garden of Eden, and it hasn't stopped since. It ruined the whole human race. It broke our relationship with our Creator. It drove a wedge between people in every imaginable way. It introduced corruption and death into the human DNA and all of creation. It enslaved us to its maniacal lust for absolute control of our bodies, our minds, and our wills. It left us in a condition of eternal separation from the source of all life, help, and happiness with no ability to find our way back to him and no hope of rescue. That's a, sum, that's a summation of the effects of sin on, on us. But God, in his boundless grace, provided a complete solution by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, die in our place for our crimes, rise from the dead, return to his Father in heaven to reign forever as King of kings and Lord of lords, and he offers salvation from sin and death to all who trust in him alone for the rescue that we need. And when God justifies us, he not only declares us to be righteous, freeing us from the penalty of sin, but... He also sanctifies us, freeing us from the power of sin. And one day he will glorify us, freeing us from the very presence of sin. And Romans 6 was written to help us understand the relationship between our justification, which is the legal declaration that we're no longer guilty, and our sanctification, which is actually the process of making us holy or freeing us from sin. And it answers this question. How has my being declared righteous by God enabled me to live righteously before God? Or another way to ask that same question is, how does removing guilt, the guilt of sin, affect the power of sin over me? And that's what we want to talk about this morning. That's, that's the whole point of Romans chapter 6. Because there is a reality that God has done something very significant. And there's a reality that we continue to battle in these bodies with sin. And how do those two things work together? And with God's help, we want to gain a better understanding of this. And be greatly helped in our quest for holiness. So look at the next verse with me. Verse 2. He asked the question, should we go on sinning in order to draw more grace out of God? And he answers the question, no, never. Not possible. He uses a very emphatic Greek word. It's a resounding and emphatic word that basically says, 
that proposal is unthinkable on so many levels. But why? Really, why is it so unthinkable? And he's going to go on in the next several verses and build his case against such a notion. And so he begins with another question. In verse 2, he continues, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And he's speaking of a single event that occurs when we're born again. And if you're following along on the back of your back side of your notes, um, I've got a bunch of questions and answers there that are fill in the blank for those of you who just love worksheets. And it'll help you follow along if you want to if you want to do that. In this verse, Paul is speaking rhetorically and he asserts the obvious. He says, you can't go on living in the realm of something that you've already died to. Think about that for a minute. What you have died to can no longer control you. This is the fundamental premise of the whole chapter and all of the rest of the chapter is essentially an elaboration on that principle. You cannot continue to live under the control of something that you've died to. That's not only true physically, but it's true spiritually. And so we need to understand the implications of our death and of our new life. So let's read these next several verses, starting in verse 3. He goes on to say, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that Christ, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. In this whole section here, Paul is talking about our union with Christ. And he uses the, uh, the idea of baptism. He says in verse 3, you've been immersed into Christ. That's what it means to be baptized. And he, and he goes on in verses 4 through 6 to say that means you've been crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, and you're living a new life. You and I. Because we've been placed into Christ. Verse 6 says we're no longer slaves. Verse 7 says that we've been freed from sin's legal claim. That word justified there was, that word is translated justified in every one of your English Bibles except for there was one version uh, quite a few years ago that, that used the actual correct translation of that um, word and it's, it's justified, not, sorry, your Bible probably says freed like mine. But the word is actually, it's the same word that's used so many other places in the New Testament, justified. It's a, it's a legal claim. 
it means that sin's claim against you legally has been removed and the guilt of it has been removed and the hope of freedom has been restored and then verses 8 through 10 are uh, a summation of what he's already just said in verse 8 he says we participate in his death and therefore we, we participate in his life verse 9 says that the power of death has been destroyed and verse 10 says that the reign of sin has been broken so this whole idea of a representative doing something that then is translated to us is very interesting so let me ask you this question when were you crucified, buried and resurrected to new life when did that happen it happened when you were baptized spiritually which is pictured by your physical water baptism that's why water baptism is so important because it pictures something very, very profound in the life of a Christian. It pictures the moment when you died and you were resurrected in Christ. This is when your old life died and you were raised, born again to new life. <clears throat> to baptize means to, to dip repeatedly or to, to immerse or to submerge but it has even a deeper meaning in the Greek, which means to overwhelm or to absorb into something. It's like when we speak of someone being immersed in their work. He's so immersed in his work, he can't hardly think about anything else. You and I have been immersed into Christ. We've been placed into Christ. We've been absorbed into Christ. We've been made one with Christ. We're in union with Christ. What's true of Christ is true of you. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? The main point is this. Your union with Christ is of massive importance because it means that you are intimately identified with him and permanently bonded to him so that what was accomplished by his life and death and resurrection was accomplished in you. What's true of him is true of you. Just as he was crucified, we are crucified. Just as he died, we died. Just as he was resurrected from the dead, we are resurrected from the dead. Just as he walks in new life, we walk in new life. Just as sin's power has been broken in his physical body, so also sin no longer reigns over us. And just as his physical body died and was resurrected with a new glorified body, so also we will one day be resurrected with a new incorruptible and glorious body. The point is not that we cannot sin. The point is that we need not sin because we died to sin and what you've died to can no longer control you. So after all that, he says something very interesting. In verse 11, he says, Even so, consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, why does he say consider? I thought you just got done saying that this thing was an absolute reality. It really did happen. Well, 
it really did happen and it is an absolute reality but the problem is that the way this translates into our experience our functional living is through considering that word consider I don't think it's the very best word that the English translator could have used because it's an imperative Greek word that means take stock of, to count, to reckon. It's like an accounting word. You add it up. You, you do the math. You do the math. You calculate the, the, the logical steps that Paul has argued with through and you come to a, a conclusion that gets fixed in your mind and your heart. Let me ask you this question. Do you believe that you're dead to sin? And you're, if you're like me and most people, you, you're kind of like, well, yes, kind of. I'm not sure I know what that means, though. Do you find it hard to reconcile with your own experience? Does your personal experience battling sin and losing seem to contradict the idea that you're dead to sin. That's where the rub is, right? Many Christians find it hard to believe that they're dead to sin because our experience doesn't seem to line up with it because the daily battle with sin so often ends in defeat. That's why it's critical that we put two and two together we do the math, we reason our way through Paul's argument, and we understand our death to sin. Because our death to sin is our defense in our daily battle with indwelling sin. Because indwelling sin continues to find a foothold because of these bodies, which we're going to talk more about in a little bit. Do you remember the Alamo? Well, I mean, you weren't there, but you've ever heard the uh, phrase, remember the Alamo? (laughs) The Battle of the Alamo in February of 1836 was a pivotal event in a military engagement in the Texas Revolution. Following a 13-day siege, Mexican troops under President General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana reclaimed the Alamo mission near modern-day San Antonio, Texas, killing all the occupants. I think some famous people died there. Daniel Boone or Davy Crockett or one of those guys. Well, the Texans didn't forget that slaughter. And so, remember the Alamo was a call for vengeance against the enemy during the Texans' ongoing struggle for independence with Mexico. And later, it was used as the rallying cry during the Mexican-American War. Well, do you remember your baptism? Do you remember your baptism? Your baptism was a pivotal event, probably the pivotal event in your war with sin. And we remember water baptism, but I really mean do you remember your spiritual baptism? Do you remember when you were placed into Christ? 
your baptism symbolizes your death to sin. Think about what that means. You don't have to sin anymore. He doesn't say that sin is dead, but that the believer is to count himself dead, to consider himself dead. For the believer to re-enter the realm of the dead is unthinkable. And when you sin, you're re-entering the realm of the dead. You don't belong there anymore. You've been raised from death to life through baptism into Christ Jesus. Well, beloved, when you and I are embattled by sin, what should you do? Remember your baptism. I should point up here. Remember your baptism. Remember that you are in Christ, immersed into Christ, in union with Christ. What's true of him is true of you. And so he goes on and he gives his first command. He says, don't give control of your body to sin. Rather, give God control of your body for his service. Don't let sin reign. Don't obey it. Don't give it your body. Give your body to God. This is what he's saying in verses 12 through 13. He says, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Because we're dead to sin, we must not give it a foothold in our lives to reassert itself in our bodies. Because, you see, sin is a dethroned monarch. It has no authority to command you. Your physical body is the domain where sin used to reign supreme and it wants to regain its its lost territory. You know, we can picture it like this. Picture this idea as a castle in the realm of a great king And inside that castle, there's a rebellion afoot. The realm is the realm of God, the one true king. The castle, the castle of the realm, it's your body. What goes on inside that castle? Well, there's a throne in the castle. And that throne represents where Jesus is ruling over your life. But there's a usurper to the throne. There's a rebel challenger. You know who he is? He's the dethroned sin. That's his name. Sin. And he's plotting to regain the throne. He wants it back. Bad. Who else is in the castle? Well, there are servants that live and work inside the castle. And those servants are your desires your inclinations that animate your body. And inside the castle, there's that rebellion I referred to. It's a secret coup that's going on. It's sin, the dethroned monarch, 
who's luring your desires to aid his goal to retake the throne. And there are tactical weapons and strategies at uh, at work to resist the plot. Your body parts, your mind, your eyes, your hands, your mouth, submitted to the one who has the right to the throne, that is the tactic. That's why Paul says, submit your body to God. Present your body to God, because that's how you will resist the rebellion of sin retaking the throne. And then finally, this leads us to our next verse. There's a constitutional monarchy, or sorry, there's a constitutional authority. It's like the banners that are flying over the castle. The constitutional authority says this, under grace, not under law. This is the legal charter whereby you know who has the right to sit on the throne. You see, sin has an agenda. It wants the throne of your life and it wants you dead. That's why God told Cain, you must master it. Formerly, we were presenting our bodies to sin. To be used for its evil purposes as an unbroken pattern of life because we had no power to resist its attraction. But now we are to present our whole person, ourselves, to God as people who have been brought back from the dead. Our bodies are now to be offered as instruments, or as Romans 12.1 says, living sacrifices that show God's transforming work in us. That's what it means when he says in verse 14, sin will not be master over you because you're not under law, but you're under grace. So here's the question that you need to ponder. We need to ponder. Have you presented the members of your body to be used for evil? We're not to do that anymore. And as a result, have you been overcome with guilt over your past sins? This verse here wants to help us deal with that because it's the ongoing burden of guilt over sin that keeps us in the pattern of sin. When we recognize the freedom that we've been given in Christ and the guilt that's been removed, and we no longer live in that guilt, we live in hope of the future resurrection and all that God is doing right now to lead us to that day, that, that is the source of, of power. That's our defense against indwelling sin. So this verse is a rich source of encouragement to anyone who's laden with guilt over sin and it's a powerful motivation to content, to not continue in sin but real briefly just to help us understand this whole idea of law and grace what is law what is law law is the righteousness of god revealed in the form of lists or a a list of rules law is the righteousness of god revealed in the form of a list of rules Do not lie, do not cheat, do not steal, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not covet, keep the Sabbath, honor your parents, 
the law is good. It's holy, righteous, and good, Paul said. But it is their command, stark command, saying, if you want to be righteous like God, you got to live this way. Here it is. I'm laying it out for you. You going to do this? That's law. But just knowing the law doesn't help anyone not sin. In fact, according to Romans chapter 7, verse 5, it only stirs sin up all the more. It makes you want to do it all the more. That's the problem with law. Well, what is grace? Grace is the righteousness of God revealed in the person of Jesus. And grace, unlike law, empowers us to submit to God's commands. So then what does it mean to be not under law but under grace? Well, when you were under law, you were endeavoring to provide your own righteousness through law-keeping in order to stand justified or right before God. But under grace, you're looking to Christ and receiving his righteousness through faith in order to stand justified before God. So if that's true, then how does being under grace guarantee that sin won't master me anymore? Sin does not anymore have the right to tell me what to do. That's what he just said in verse 14. Because you're not under law but under grace, sin will not be your master. Why is that? Well, similar to this, a declaration God made a declaration. He said, this is true, and nobody can change it. When you put verse 12 and verse 14 together, it says, don't let sin master you because sin is not going to be your master. That doesn't make any sense if you approach your Bible from a man-centered, self-deterministic view. However, if you see God as the sovereign and decisive person in how you live your Christian life, then you'll talk like this. I choose not to sin. I choose not to let sin reign in my body because God is at work in me and he won't let sin reign in my body. You, you act in accordance with what God has already said is true. You, you choose to live in light of the rights that you have as one who's been declared not guilty. There's so many benefits to being under grace. You've been delivered from the reigning power of sin. You've been delivered from the paralyzing guilt of sin that leaves us hopeless. And you've been given a heart of obedience that desires to do his word. So now Paul leads us to his second set of que- his second question and answer. Once again, he asks the question: Should we keep sinning? And this time he changes it up a little bit. Should we keep sinning because we're not under law but under grace? And again, he answers the question in the same exact way: No, never, not possible, inconceivable. We might ask the question this way. Since we stand justified before God because of Jesus' perfect righteousness, 
shouldn't we sin all we want? Because there won't be any consequences. His grace is going to cover it all. Once again, who talks like that? Do you do you talk like that? I don't, I don't talk like that. Eh, but really? Does knowing that you're under grace ever make you think that maybe sin isn't such a big deal? And once again, he, he reinforces this strong answer with a penetrating question in the next verse. Verse 16. Don't you know? Don't you know? Here it is. You got to know something in order to live a certain way. So we remind, don't you know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are the slaves of the one you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? What is he saying here? You can't serve two masters. You can't have it one way and the other. Remember the old Burger King advertisement? Have it your way. Add Burger King. You can't have it your way with sin. Sin won't let you have it your way. You won't be able to just sin a little and walk away unscathed. Sin will trick us into thinking that we're in control But instead, we wake up the next morning after the big thrill, newly enslaved to sin, because you are the slave of the one you obey. Are you presenting your body, yourself, your your body parts to anything that might enslave you? Do you believe that the tiniest sin results in death? The answer is no. We can't go on sinning under grace. Sin results in death. But verse 17, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Here's his argument. When God frees us from sin, he doesn't say, go on, get out of here, you're free now, do whatever you want. He says, no, I got even a better idea. Come follow me. Let me take control of your life, the perfect holy one, and I will show you how to live righteously, and you will be happy. We're slaves of God, and that's why, that's why we can't go on sinning. Thankfully, by God's grace, we're no longer enslaved to sin's dominance. He's given us a new heart. It says here, you became obedient from the heart. How? Because you changed your heart. You've been given a new heart with new desires that want to obey God and not sin. Do you desire that? I would say, yes, I desire that. Is your ambition to not sin? Is your ambition to not practice any particular sin? I would say, yes, I do have those ambitions. But I have patterns of sin that are so hard to break. What can I do to empower my desires and my ambitions? away from sin and toward God. What can I do, Paul? 
And he tells us what we can do. Offer your body to God. Present your body parts to God. He doesn't just say generally your body. He says your members, your hands, your eyes, your mouth, your stomach, your brain, your feet, your emotions, the internal things that animate you, your fears, your hopes and dreams, your ambitions. Offer it all to God, specifically, daily, maybe moment by moment, depending on the heat of the battle. Consciously offer your body parts to God for his righteousness. We used to willingly offer our bodies and our minds to impurity, to entertain evil thoughts, and to act in ways that were contrary to God's law, which always compounds in greater and greater lawlessness, more impurity, evil of a worse kind. Have you seen this? Uh, maybe in your own life or in someone else's life that you know, how sin always leads to more sin and to worse sin. Sin is not static. It's not It's not content to remain in a fixed state. It always progresses. You sow a thought, you reap an action. You sow an action, you reap a habit. You sow a habit, you reap a lifestyle. You sow a lifestyle, you reap your destiny. But in contrast, we must now offer control of our minds and our bodies to to conform to God, to his law, to the lordship of Christ to do his will, which will reproduce itself in greater and greater righteousness. In the next few verses, Paul is going to strengthen his argument by expanding the analogy into slavery. He says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Verse 20. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. The natural man is a slave to sin. The natural man doesn't rule sin. Sin rules him. And you and I, before we were believers, were in bondage to sin, to its allurements. We saw sin as being more attractive than righteousness. Righteousness didn't look rewarding. And so it didn't have any appeal to us. Our tastes and our affections were trained towards sin, and so we served it completely without concern for what God says is right. That was the problem when we were slaves to sin. And what benefit were we deriving from that, that giving ourselves over to sin? Looking back on that time and that way of living, what did you gain from it, really? What one good thing did sin ever contribute to your life? Did it ever give you a gift, truly? A good gift? No. That life, that way of life wasn't better. We weren't we aren't now missing out on something really good that we were receiving back when we were slaves of sin. In fact, now when we think back on our life, in sin, it's it's disgusting to us, and it makes us feel ashamed. That's what he says. You're now ashamed of the things that you used to to think that you benefited from, and now we realize that that life was only leading to death and eternal separation from God. 
Now it's going to get really good. Verse 22, he says, Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your real benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. Did you notice who freed the slaves? This is not a jailbreak. You're freed from sin because God came in and he rescued you. He freed you from sin. He's the decisive deliverer of enslaved sinners. Our part, which is real and crucial, is dependent upon his part. And what God did immediate what did God do immediately after he freed you? He enslaved you to himself. You were a prisoner, riding in the slavehold. We can go back one. You were a prisoner riding in the hold of, a, of the slave ship unrighteousness. Until the sovereign captain of his majesty's ship righteousness commandeered the slave ship, clapped the rebel ship captain's sin in irons, broke the chains of the slaves, and proclaimed them from that moment and forevermore freed men. And when you saw the goodness, the grace, and the glory that were in this man, overcome with joy, you freely vowed to serve him forever as your new sovereign. And you climbed out of the ship's hold into the fresh air, and you found yourself singing. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Without this deliverance, the rule of the rule and slavery of sin, without the deliverance from the rule and slavery of sin, and without a new direction, not perfection, but a new direction of righteousness and holiness, we will not inherit eternal life. That's what verse 23 says. The wages of sin is death. Holiness is the only pathway that leads to eternal life. And that's why the fight against sin is so serious. Look at the contrasts in verse 23. Sin pays wages. The wages of sin is death. But God gives life. He gives gifts. A wage is something that you earn. A gift can't be earned. A wage is a matter of justice. A gift is a matter of grace. And there's something very deceptive and insidious about sin, the master, the old master. His demands all seem pleasant, and they offer pleasure. And so when we obey, it feels like freedom. No one sins out of duty, but out of desire. And so why does Paul say that sin exacts a wage? Because sin's demands really do deplete us. Sin doesn't restore. It takes and it takes and it takes and it does not give. Every time you sin, you lose. With every sin, life is being drained out of you and death is a little closer 
And that's the wage that this cruel master gives for all your obedience to his desire. And in the end, he laughs. There's another contrast here that I don't want you to miss in verse 23 as we wrap up. The ultimate gift of God is eternal life. And the Bible is clear that sin's ultimate wage is eternal death. Not just ceasing to exist, but eternal conscious torment under the just and holy wrath of God. This is the final wage of sin. The slave master, sin, seduces his slaves to disobey God. And in the end, he simply disappears and leaves them to perish at the judgment of the Almighty. What a trick. What a charade. But the slaves of God, they go into eternity with God as their giver. That's what eternal life means. God remains the giver forever and forever. There will never cease to be a time when God will not be giving new joys to his people. God will never run out of gifts and he'll never cease to be the giver. Ephesians 2.7 says that God raised us up in Christ so that in the ages to come he might show the boundless riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. You see what this means? It means that eternal life is what it will take for God to exhaust the riches of his kindness to us in Jesus. It'll take eternity. The gifts that he has for us in himself are infinite in number and infinite in perfection. And that's why it's going to take eternity for us to enjoy them. And that's our motivation to not sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We ask that you would help us. Help us to know that you've broken the power of canceled sin and you've set the prisoners free. And in that truth, help us to walk in obedience to you. We know that because of the flesh that we, we live in, the flesh that's corrupt, the flesh that will die one day, because of that flesh we continue to, to battle indwelling sin, and we will. We will until the day we go to be with you. But we ask that you would help us to fight as if it were a matter of life and death. Because it is. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.